This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, this is AC. The Doc Project will not be coming back in the fall. So this summer, we're bringing you some of our favorite episodes since the show began back in 2015. This episode originally aired in February of 2018, and it won a gold medal at the New York Festival's Radio Awards that same year. In 2014, in New Orleans, a woman named Miriam Burbank had a party. Miriam, or Maymay, as her daughters like to call her, sat at a table with a big old pair of sunglasses on and a full view of her guests. Miriam had a pint of her favorite bush beer in one hand and a menthol cigarette in the other. If you looked closely, you would see that her fingernails were painted black and gold, the colors of her favorite football team, the New Orleans Saints. Miriam was 54 years old, and this party was her last. Miriam was dead, and this was her funeral. Respecting her final wishes, her family propped up her corpse and dressed her up to the nines. Okay, it might sound grotesque, but it's not that different from open casket. It's just like open casket meets open bar. And she's at the open bar because she's sitting up at the table. Okay, not that many people in North America, at least, are having themselves embalmed and sat up at their own funerals. But the idea of the party funeral is becoming increasingly common. They want a party. In Miriam's case, she wanted to be at that party. When Samira Moyadin's dad got sick, she didn't wait till his funeral to throw a party. The party started while he was still alive. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. It was 3 a.m. when Faraj Moyadin collapsed in pain. Samira got down on the ground, put her arms around her father, and asked him where it hurt. He told her her breath was bad. She laughed. Then the ambulance took him to the hospital. Faraj was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. At first, Samira wanted her dad to try everything, every treatment. She made him rest. She put him on a special diet that he hated. But when it became clear that Faraj wasn't going to get better, Samira decided if she couldn't keep him alive, she was going to make her dad's last days the best of his life. Here's Samira. A week at the hospital and I begin to understand the pace and rhythm of patient life. I also begin to understand how hospitals function very much like prisons. The occasional patient who tries to break free. Attention, attention, code yellow for male, 5.7. There are specific visiting hours. We're given uniforms. Lights out at 8. We always have our chance for redemption once a week. Sunday worship service begins at 10.30 a.m. at the chapel. And of course, there is the food. The awful food. We get breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the same time every day. Someone comes in an hour or two before and asks us what my father wants to eat. Also every day, they come and draw two to three vials of blood from him, always at different times of the day and night. And then they run the exact same tests as the day before. See, my dad's a patient here. But I'm living here, too. I'm not sick. I just won't leave his side. I moved in when he was admitted. 
I sleep on the windowsill or next to him in bed. But more on that later. We're on the palliative care floor, the third floor. My father doesn't know what the word palliative means. English isn't his first language, and I don't want to tell him. I, I, I know if I do, it would kill him right here and now. I mean, my dad is a really sensitive guy. He cries at long-distance commercial phone raid ads. He shrinks at the sight of blood. He fainted when my mom gave birth. And I want to keep his spirits up. This place, it could really get you down. Except that our room, room 346, is very different from the other rooms. It's the Studio 54 of hospital rooms. It's full of people, singing, dancing, and drugs. Lots and lots of drugs. But hold on, let's go back to how we got here. It all started when my dad collapsed at home one night, holding his side and writhing in pain. We called an ambulance to take him to the hospital, and it was almost a week later that we got the diagnosis. And if it's, uh, it wouldn't be malignant, what it will be? That's my mom speaking with the doctor. Yeah, I think it's cancer. almost certainly cancer. It's more just what type of cancer. So the, the, the neoplasm that you saw is malignant? Neoplasm. I had stayed up till 3.30 a.m. the night before we were supposed to meet with the doctor researching and reading. A friend of mine told me that if you use medical terminology when speaking to doctors, they would respect and listen to you more. Neoplasm, a new and abnormal growth of tissue in some part of the body, especially as a characteristic of cancer. There's not much else that gives this appearance within the pancreas mm -hmm. other than a cancer. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. okay. Good luck. Yeah. Thank you. you. Okay. Take care. That faint thank you at the end, that's my dad. I'll play it for you one more time. Our meeting with the doctor lasted 27 minutes. Those were the only words he spoke. Adenocarcinoma of the pancreas. Pancreatic cancer. That's what my dad had. From the information I found that night, fewer than 5% survive. And the average life expectancy of patients with pancreatic adenocarcinoma is just under six months. I would read these statistics incessantly online, but I honestly wasn't taking in the timeline. I guess I... I just didn't want to believe it. Instead, I went into fix-it mode. So, we started treatment. Day one of chemo. Wasn't smooth. Excuse me. We've been given a series of pills that we're supposed to take bef an hour before the chemo. Okay. Do you know... There were so many people waiting to be administered that they give you pagers. The beeper should beep to let you know it's time to take the pills. We're supposed to take it an hour before the chemo. But things didn't go as planned. We got called for the chemo, but still no beep. Take your pre-meds and tell the nurse you've just taken it. I guess they overlook not telling you. It's just... Yeah, she put it on the board, you just were not, not notified. So it does happen, and it didn't happen today. Just tell the nurse when you go in. God, it is so easy to be cynical here, to feel like a number, so humdrum, the, the one, two, three of it all. 56? Is it with your papa? Yep. Uh, 
She look after me. She look after me. He's beaming when he tells the nurse that. It's true. I look after him. I'm not sure when that decision was made, that I will be my father's primary caregiver. I just am. And I know that he was pleased that it was me. Because we have a real camaraderie. I mean, everyone would always say to me, you're just like your dad. And the more I get older, the more I see it, too. From our hair, the way we dance, our general appearance, actually. But really, it's that dry sense of humor that we both have. And in a lot of ways, it's completely emblematic of our outlook on life. I'm, I'm often frustrated here, but people can also be great. Like on this day, I'm so glad that our chemo nurse is determined to get my father's name right. And so is he. What do you want me to call you? What's your first name? Faraj. Faraj. Just okay. call me Faraj. Faraj, I will. We make small talk with the nurse. Iran? No, no, we don't go to Iran. 30, 30? 36 years, yeah. Revolution was on 1979. 1979, during the Iranian Revolution. That's the year my parents, my sister, and I came to Canada. My father was just 33 when he picked up his family and left everything he knew to come here with my mom. I was only four at the time, and all I remember is my parents being glued to the nightly news. Back in Iran, my dad had finished an engineering degree, but his first job in Canada was actually as a carpenter, which is totally absurd because my dad somehow convinced them that he knew what he was doing. But eventually, he did go back to school in Toronto to get recertified as an engineer. 1979 was also the year that one of our favorite songs was released. Bad Girl by Donna Summer. I remember watching him dance to this. His hips would gyrate back and forth, and his hands. His hands were always in the air, but they would never go above his head. They just kind of twirled at the wrists above his shoulders, and he would throw in a double clap here and there. People around him also loved watching him dance. I was always so proud at the way he commanded a room so effortlessly. And that's the dad I want to see again. But the treatments don't work. My dad had been in and out of the hospital receiving chemotherapy, but the malignant neoplasm got bigger, and my dad got really sick. Then he was admitted into the hospital with pneumonia. Complications from the treatment. Not the cancer, the treatment. So I decided to move in, permanently. This place, I need to watch out for him. Who knows what will be forgotten or missed when he's here full time. I quit my job, and he becomes my number one priority. I didn't have a plan. I just, I just knew this is what I had to do. We had a family meeting, and I decided at no time should he ever be alone. Ever. When I tell his palliative doctor that I'm going to stay at the hospital with him, she advises against it and says, I'm not prepared for what's to come. But I don't care. I think you're the ones who aren't prepared. Because I've decided that room 346, it's going to be different. 
I didn't know the timeline then, but I'll be living here for just 28 days. And for those 28 days, this room, it's just for Dad. Day one of Operation Good Times. It's a private room. There are only eight of them on the entire floor. The other rooms have two to four people in them. We were in those before we got this one. We have our own TV and our own one-and-a-half bath. One of the walls faces the street and has an enormous window, which gives us a panoramic view of the parking lot, allowing me to see exactly who is coming and going and then relaying that to my dad so he can decide if he wants to see that person or not. Just under the windowsill is a banquette. This will be my bed for the next 28 days and a couch for our day guests. I am determined to be the best playmate my father has ever known. And so, of course, I start with one of the things he loves most, football. Oman is playing Iran in the FIFA World Cup qualifying match, and I make sure we watch the match in Persian. The next morning, he tells me about his dream. He had been playing football, but all the footballs were deflated. He kept looking for balls with air in them, but none of them had any. But he continued kicking them anyway. We're always interrupted by the beeping. A constant reminder of where we are and what is happening. Day five. We wake up and lay in bed together as usual. Somehow, we got onto the topic of Donna Summer, you know, one of his favorites. And the next thing you know, I pull him out of bed. He's on his feet, singing and dancing, of course. Okay, this all might sound a little high intensity for a man who has the same drug as Agent Orange running through his veins. But I say, if a dying man wants to dance, let him dance. Also, you need to know that my father was on obscene amounts of morphine 24 hours a day. So the fact that he could sing and dance at all in this state, it's metal-worthy. And, to be honest, I never see my dad freer during his illness. Maybe in his life. And of course, I was right there with him, jumping and dancing. I get to know him in a way that I never have before. Look, my dad could at times have a really tough edge. And, and there was a lot of tension in my teens. But in this room, he was so gentle and carefree. He needs this. Maybe I do too. Singing and dancing. It's just part of who dad is. My dad comes from a large family. He's one of eight siblings, and I have about 40-some-odd cousins. Our last big family get-together was for my grandparents' anniversary three years ago 
in the party room of their building. It's the only place big enough to hold all of us. My dad was instructing the family on what parts we should sing. He was using his drinking glass as a conductor's baton as he sang the main part of the tune. It was epic. The main voice there, that's dad, sitting in a chair at the head of the table. Day seven. It's the weekend, and that means our room is jam-packed from day to night. My dad and I always try and put on a good show for the visitors. We stand facing each other, and our hands are placed on each other's shoulders, and we rock from side to side to side, singing. Operation Good Times is catching on. The nurses also love it. In fact, the room is a sort of refuge for other patients and workers who want to escape the reality of where we are. But my dad's voice changes dramatically. And he knows it too. Day 9. My father hasn't cried much throughout all of this, or gotten angry. I actually, I don't know how he's feeling. He just sort of goes through the days and nights with me, and at times will look to see how I react to news from the doctors in order to gauge how he should be reacting. But this Persian folk song gets him good. The song is about a deer hunter who falls in love with a woman who has such tremendous power over him that her look alone can pierce him the way his bullets do a deer. You smell nice. Mm-hmm. I'm tapped out of tears. I'm not allowing myself to do that because I know he's looking to me to see how he should feel. Now is not the time for my tears. <laughs> Day 11. (laughs) Our days are filled with people. They are easy. It's the nights where time just hangs. On the wall. On my wrist. I've become so aware of time. Its limitations. Its infiniteness. The rhythm of everything. As the pneumonia progresses, my father becomes a a soundscape. His breath, the rise and, and fall of his chest, produces sounds that are both majestic and horrifying. 
As he rests, I close my eyes and pretend we're by the sea. My mind drifts to happier times with Dad. And that always involved me sitting on his shoulders when I was a little kid. That was my permanent perch. No matter where we were going, I was there on his shoulders. The Toronto Islands, the store, or even at home. I lived on his shoulders, and he would call me Dodashi, or little brother. Day 18. How are you? How are you, sir? Very good. Are we empty? Yeah. I think so. All right, wonderful. After our usual morning Ivy bag changes, we go for a march around the ward. On, up, 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 up. That's it. Slow down, slow down. It's Mother's Day today, so my dad asks me to take him down to the gift shop so he can buy my mom a card. It's the Mother's Day dance. Almost there. Almost there. Come on. Listening to this now, I realize I'm speaking to him like a baby. Maybe that was wrong. I don't know, but it's odd. I mean, that's exactly how I love him. Like a baby. I bathe him. I play with him, I feed him, I clothe him, I teach him to walk. I've never felt more useful in my life as I do right now, caring for him. And I I don't think I ever will. Day 23. The days continue to pass with constant visitors, games and laughter. But the nights are getting harder and harder. I'm not sleeping much. His breathing scares me. But I don't feel good. But I don't feel good. That's the first time he tells me he's not feeling well. You feel like vomiting a little bit? Let me get this out of your nose. No, I'm not vomiting. No, it's sweaty. Lie down? No, no. Shoot. Okay, that's good, because we want her to come in here anyways, right? Ah. Yeah. That's okay. What kind of feeling do you have? Uh, Nauseous? Yeah. Yeah? Restless, nauseous. Yeah. Day 28. The nurse arrives and my father asked for more morphine. After that, he starts to get really agitated. He's all over the place and he wants to do 10 things at once. 
I quickly call my mom because I can tell something is very wrong. He was sweating a lot. I change his t-shirt twice because it's completely soaked. He wants to go to the washroom. Then when my mom arrived, he asked to play cards. Then he asked me for some vanilla pudding. And so I begin to give it to him. And I hold him in my arms. And then he closes his eyes, lifts his shoulders, takes a quick breath in, and he's gone. That's it. Just like that. A couple days before he passed, we sang together one last time. I was on the bed with him, as usual, and we were lying next to each other, our faces turned towards the window. At his funeral, I read this poem by Rumi. Dance when you're broken open. Dance if you've torn the bandage off. Dance in the middle of the fighting. Dance in your blood. Dance when you're perfectly free. Dad, I know you're still dancing and singing. I'll listen for you. That story was produced by Samira Moyadin. It was edited by Julia Poggle and Allison Cook. That's all for us this week. Music credits go to Casablanca Records for the song Bad Girls by Donna Summer. This episode of The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Julia Poggle, and me. Our digital producer on this episode was Craig Dessen. And our senior producer was Jennifer Warren. I'm Macy Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.